0: This episode of the Internal Comms podcast is brought to you by ACID Test, AB's unique and powerful tool for aligning organizations around a common cause. Now, we all know communication does not equal understanding. If it did, well, our jobs would be a lot easier. The ACID test of internal communication is whether there is shared understanding. Is the goal clear? Are we all pulling in the same direction? Do we share the same priorities, the same purpose? ACID test is a powerful tool that reveals knowledge gaps inside organisations. Its unique and proven methodology gives you the insight and information you need to drive performance by creating deeper understanding and alignment. Now, listeners, you know how fond I am of asking open probing questions that hopefully reveal fresh and genuine insight. ACID Test is not a tick box survey. Instead, the method is a message Simply taking part in acid test makes employees feel heard, understood, and valued. Visit abcomabcowm.co.uk/acidtest to find out more. Download a PDF to discuss with your team, and arrange an informal call to discuss acid test with me and my AB colleagues. So that address again for you, abcom abcowmcouk forward slash acid test. Now is the time to take a privileged peek inside the mind of your organisation by asking the questions that matter. Acid Test, a communications audit without the autocomplete. And we're back. Welcome to Season 5 of the Internal Comms podcast. My name is Katie McCauley, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the best performing organizations are also the best communicators. Together, we are going to dive into the world of employee comms. How can we create a truly productive and meaningful dialogue with our people that propels our organizations forward? Now, we talk a lot in comms about content, I'm often talking to clients about their content frameworks, their content calendars, about measuring the performance of their content. One day a colleague said to me rather quietly at the end of a meeting, he said, you know, Katie, no one ever read their child bedtime content. It was a great reminder that we should always strive to be storytellers, not merely content creators. My guest today is Gabrielle Dolan. While working in senior roles in corporate Australia, Gabrielle realised the power of storytelling in a business context. Today, she is a highly sought-after international keynote speaker, trainer and best-selling author of several books on storytelling, including Real Communication, How to Be You and Lead True, and Stories for Work, the essential Guide to Business Storytelling, which topped the charts in Australia's best-selling business books. Her new book is just out. It's called Magnetic Stories, connect with customers and engage employees with brand storytelling. Gabrielle joined me from her home in Melbourne. This was a really illuminating and inspiring conversation about all aspects of storytelling. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Gabrielle, I am so excited to have you on the show. I've wanted to interview you since I first read your book, Stories for Work, and that must be at least two years ago. And I've known for some time, we've all known for some time, that storytelling is becoming more and more important in business
1: so thank you thank you so much for spending the time with me. Thanks Katie it's great to be here. And within when an intro like that when I hear people go I've always wanted to talk to you I feel like dragging in my teenage children and go see listen people want to talk to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah I've got a 16 year old I know exactly what you mean. So let's start with you. One of the things I read about you in researching for this episode was that you're one of eight children and that you think maybe part of your interest in storytelling and your storytelling skills came from basically wanting to get attention, being one of eight. Is that
1: true? I think it's sort of a bit of truth in that, that you think, you know, if you can hold, you know, you think of it, you know, sitting around the dinner table and you got, you know, your two parents and your eight kids, like if if you're able to tell a good story, you get a little bit of airtime. It was probably more, you know, in my early twenties and going up and going out with my mates and, you know, on a Saturday, Friday, Saturday night, and being able to tell a good story that, you know, I I love doing that. So there's a bit of truth in that, but I, I think probably the real reason is I really noticed the power in storytelling probably about 20 years ago when I was doing a lot of change management roles at National Australia Bank, which is one of Australia's largest banks and I noticed how powerful storytelling was then. But um, I, you know, I still see all my mates that I went to school with, you know, and, I, and they they cannot believe I'm making a living out of telling stories. <laughs> just, like, they seriously go, I can't believe you turned your whatever it was on a, you know, at the pub into a opportunity to make a career out of it. So there's a bit of truth in that. It's quite interesting because I think we're learning a
0: lot now about why storytelling works and both your book, Stories for Work, your new book, Magnetic Stories, both start by explaining the neuroscience behind storytelling. I just wonder if you can tell us a little bit about why storytelling is so
1: effective. How does it affect our brains? Mm, it's it, it's funny, um Katie, in the last couple of my books, I have there's probably a chapter on the science of storytelling. and it's one of those things I sort of forced myself to do because intrinsically, I knew storytelling worked. Um, you know, like I said, in my change management roles, I knew storytelling was a much better way to communicate your message. and and this was in a bank, so this is I just knew it worked. And so I sort of forced myself to look into the science and and without getting too deep, you know, there's a huge amount of work from a really good n- neuroscience, you know, like Carmen Simon, Antonio Damasio, and they all talk about the role emotion plays in our decision making. And so I think in business, we spend, we have this really bias towards facts and figures and logic and think that's how we can influence people and that's how we can persuade them to make a decision. And whether that decision is to buy from you or to work for you or to get behind a change, but logic doesn't, we're humans. So emotion has the most, um, you know, emotion plays a really big part in the way we influence. And there's all this research to show that story taps into emotion. So to me, it just makes really good business sense and it's backed up with science that we use story to tap into emotion to help influence people, and I, like again, whether that's you know getting people connected to your purpose or your values or your product or your services or your brand, whatever it is, emotions really powerful. Mm. And it,
0: I didn't realize until reading stories for work that there's actually a reciprocal aspect to storytelling. You write not only does a, a good story make us feel emotions and a connection to the storyteller, but at the same time. The love hormone, oxytocin, is also signaling that we can be trusted, which in turn helps build our credibility. This is really fascinating. There's actually a sort of two-way exchange of emotion and feeling happening when we tell stories, and I, I'd never realized that.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's, it's part of the me, you know, as a pure, you know, just efficiency way to communicate, if you can sh- communicate with a story A, first of all, helps people understand what you're talking about. It helps them remember it um, and they create a connection to it, but they don't actually only create a connection to the message you've said. All the science shows, it builds trust in the person telling the story. Now, now obviously the story has to be true and all that, but it, it can actually fast track trust and it can strengthen relationships. So, you know, as a leader, that's really important. As a salesperson, that's really important. As an internal comms person, I mean, you want people to be able to trust your message and trust you as the communicator. That's why it's really powerful. There's something I talk about in the book, um, in the last couple of my books, and it's um, Daniel Goldman, and he's the author of the best-selling book, Emotional Intelligence. And I love that there's a little bit, and I'll sort of just read it, that he explains that our brain's neocortex is the reason our emotions are so powerful. And his quote is that the emotional center of the brain, so this neocortex, where the emotions are, his quote is, it can influence the functioning of the rest of the brain. And you're thinking, (laughs) why in business are we ignoring that? So if there's part of a brain can influence the rest of the brain, and by that it's the logical part of the brain, why do we not target that? Why do we have this bias to trying to influence people through facts and figures and logic and data and PowerPoints and bullet points and which is, you know, I'm not saying that's not important, but the emotional side of the brain has greater control of the rest of the brain and you go, look, why why don't we just go there? Why don't we go there? I sort of force myself to get into the science and and I don't go deep into it, but I just wanted to know that my gut instinct and what I know from my own personal experience is completely backed up by science.
0: I loved your IABC uh, World Conference presentation last year. And one of the things that really sort of captured my imagination and my thoughts, and I thought, oh, that's so interesting. You talk about the different styles of the way that we tell stories. And you asked the audience, actually, which style are you? And to a man and woman, most of us said, oh, we're in reporter mode. Not mm. a surprise. Many of us come from a journalistic background. And I think at one point you actually put up a story and you said, you know what? Can you see? This is not a story. This is a string of facts that you have put together. And I thought that's so Spot on, because, as reporters we are we're looking for the facts and we're trying to put them in some sort of order. So can you just tell us a little bit more about the different styles of storytelling and why perhaps we need to get actually out of that natural reporter style that we find ourselves in quite a lot?
1: Mm. yeah, uh, what I've noticed after uh, you know I guess of the fifteen plus years of doing this. Is that we there is a certain style of storytelling because I mean, as humans, we tell stories. So it's like if people go, Oh, I don't use stories. As humans, we tell stories, right? We, but in business, in a business perspective, we will have a certain style, and it's determined by two things it's determined by how engaging your stories are. So are people actually listening to you the whole time, or if they stop listening well before you stop talking, or how. Purposeful they are, as in, so you know you're really clear on what the message. So if you think of it as a, you know, um, a two by two matrix, you you sort of got your bragger that's that's their stories aren't engaging and there's really no purpose to them except they tell you how you know great they are, and the joker which tells really engaging stories, but there's no purpose except to be funny, and then you have the reporter. They're clear on the message they want to get across, but they use a lot of facts and figures and statistics and um, it's not engaging. And then you have the inspirer, which ideally is where you want to be. They're really clear on the message, but they're using personal stories, which make it really engaging. And and as you said, Katie, I, I put this up, you know, in my training workshops and keynotes and I go, where do you think the vast majority of us are? And the vast majority, everyone sort of says we're reporter." And and that is regardless of country, regardless of company, regardless of interest industry, you know, leaders. Anyway, we're reporters, and and then I ask a follow up question about why do you think that's the case? And the comment everyone says it's safer, so we feel really safe. We don't have to reveal anything out of ourselves. We have this like comfort in numbers, and we think it gives us credibility. It's easier. We don't have to show any vulnerability. We don't have to share anything about ourselves. We don't, we don't have to put ourselves out there to be, perhaps be judged. And in fairness, it's the way we've been brought up. You know, So, all our career, we've been told that business is business, works works, don't mix the two, give me the facts. So, we've been conditioned that just reporting on the information, the facts, is professional. And again, I'm not saying we don't need that, but it's not very inspiring. And if you're trying to get people connected to your purpose, you can't do that reporter style. If you're trying to get people engaged to your values, your company values and what they mean, you can't do that reporter style. If you're trying to lead change, you've got to be tapping into emotion to do this. And all we're doing reporter style is we're providing information and providing information doesn't influence people. As all the, the research we just talked about it's the emotion that, that, that helps people decide whether they're going to follow you or get involved in this change or work for you or buy from you. So we need to tap into that emotion, which is moving from that reporter style. That is, that is our default style. And it's our default style for a lot of the reasons I just said. It's easier, it's safer, it's what we've been told, but it's just not very effective when you're trying to, you know, um, connect with people.
0: I'm guessing, actually, if people looked at the analytics from the content that they put out, they probably will find there's a spike in the stories that are telling a really genuine human story. Whatever that story is about, actually, yeah. it would be yeah.
1: interesting to challenge people to see if they can find yeah. that pattern. Katie, Katie, I know from my own experience, I, I write a weekly blog and, you know, I try to role model storytelling. But I, I, Not every blog I write is a story, but I know when I share a story and if it's a personal story and it's connected to a message, so it's not just random personal stories, it's connected to a message you want to get across, that has such like like an unbelievably significant impact and than, than just sharing, you know, some science or stuff on storytelling. So, I mean, even from my own personal experience, I know that works.
0: So your books, both Stories for Work and Magnetic Stories, brilliant, brilliant books. I urge all internal communicators to read them because I think actually they've become really quite essential. But what I would say is they're full of great stories. And as I was reading them, I was thinking, do I have a story? What story could I tell? And you have a great line. You say, remember, you're a metal story detector and the stories will just be below the surface. So you need to be patient and thorough when investigating. So I'm just wondering if you could just explain to us how we might find these stories. Mm. Where are they? What do we need to do? Yeah,
1: I do do use the analogy... um, of like the metal detector, per- you know, you see people with the metal detectors walking along the beach and, they, and they're just scanning, they're just scanning and, uh, you know, they're skimming the surface. And the metal's always there, but you just got to dig a little bit deeper to find it. And I think it's the same with us. Most people walk through life or walk along the beach not looking for anything, so they don't see anything. And it's, it's similar, that your stories are there, but you've got to be on the lookout for them. One of the things I often talk to people about in my workshops is to almost do a, a brain dump of your life. So almost on a blank piece of paper from your earliest memories, think about all the things that have happened to you and you're probably going to pull out some really important things. Like you you'll probably do this really quickly initially like you know when you got married or when you moved countries or when you broke your leg as a kid or you know like you'll bring out significant things. Stuff happens to you on a day-to-day basis, and if you're on the lookout for it, you will go. How could I use this story? How could I use the story? So I, um, you know, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of this. So I'm, I'm always on the lookout for stories. A few months ago, my, um, my 19-year-old daughter. Um, put me on to wine drops. So wine drops are the things you put in your your wine and you put five drops in this wine and it's meant to um, have an adverse effect on all the preservatives that are in wine. So, oh. you know, you literally reduce the, you know, hangover like stuff. So, you know, one Friday night I open up a bowl of Shiraz and I put the five drops in from the, the little, you know, wine bottle or the little wine drops bottle and uh, about, you know, Later, my daughter Alex goes to refill our glasses and um, she notices the the bottle next to the wine and she went, Mum, you didn't put these in the wine, did you? And I went, yes, well, what's the problem? And she goes, you know these aren't wine drops, they're eye drops. (laughs) And she's going, you probably poisoned us. And so my, my initial reaction was who was the idiot that left the eye drops next to the wine bottle that was my initial reaction, you know, because, you know, don't want to take the blame for myself. But then my next reaction was, God, this is a funny story. And how could I use that? Like, what message could I take from that? And then I, so I just sit there and go, dude, that's a really great message around assumptions. You know how we make assumptions all the time? So I made an assumption that just because the bottle that looked similar to the wine drops was next to the red wine bottle, I didn't even, I didn't even, I didn't even read the label. Mind you, mind you, if I read the label, the label actually said on the eye drops, blink, relief in every blink. And I reckon <laughs> if I had read it on a Friday night, I just would have read drink, relief in every drink." So, so, so what I do now is I, I literally have a book or, you know, you could do a book, you could have a spreadsheet and I write wine drops. And so I know the story. And then I just write, what could this mean? And I go, it could mean assumptions, making assumptions. Yes. So when if I ever had to give a message around, you know, the dangers of making assumptions, I could tell that story to get my point across as a, you know, as opposed to just saying we shouldn't make assumptions. Well, so what?
0: I love that. I'm gonna try this on you. We can always cut this out if this is gonna to take too long to explain. No, not I'm gonna try it. I'm going to try a story on you and see if I can then okay. link
1: it to a purpose. I love this. This is my challenge. I reckon I could do a whole TV show is you tell me your story. I'll I'll find a message for it. Go Fantastic. for it, David. Let's do it.
0: So at the end of every big office meeting, all hands meeting we have on a Friday, someone asks a question of the team and it gives us all an opportunity to talk about something sort of personal outside of work. So the question last week was, what's the most precious thing that you own, the thing that you've kept for the longest? So I get out a tiny black and white picture of my dad when he was about nine, my auntie when she's two. My nan, Nana Hilda, who was very close to, and her husband, Sam, all but three of these people have sadly died. And they all died early in life and quite suddenly. So it's an incredibly precious photograph, but I lost it when we did a house move. And after we'd unpacked all the boxes, realized that this photograph had gone. Many, many months later, I do my usual commute into London, which is a long commute, takes over an hour and it goes through the countryside of Hampshire into London. And a woman gets on two stops um, after me, where I used to live, where I sold the house. And I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, I I recognize you. She's looking at me, really looking and staring at me. And I realise she's the lady that bought the house that we sold. And she said, are you Katie McCauley? I said, yes, yes. She said, I've got something for you that I've been carrying around for months that I found in my garden. And something told me that one day I'd see you again and you'd be grateful if I gave it back to you. She gets open this big shoulder bag, delves inside it. Now, this is a very crowded train. So the other thing that's happening is by now, all eyes are on us. Anyway, she hands back the photograph and I say to her, look, let me just tell you, you're absolutely right. All these people, bar one, aren't with us anymore. And they're all very precious to me. And I'm telling this story about why this, and anyway, I turn around to the, the carriage and I can see people's literally, their eyes are feeling with tears. I don't know exactly what message that is, apart from the fact that any story, even if it's a stranger, can touch
1: us, I guess, but there's probably more in that what do you reckon okay, so he, i'm going to i'm going to give it a go because when you were telling me that story i i was starting to get shivers like you know like to think oh my god this is there's something powerful in this so it, it to me it comes down to everything you could get so you could get various messages out of that story so one of the things is as the storyteller you then have to be clear on what the message is but i this is how you could use that story is to say first of all the fact the photograph and people the the these be- beautiful people in your life had died quite young. I'd be there's a message in around that is like make every day count, like yes. make a difference. Like you never know, you never know when you could lose this precious thing of life. So make a difference. And then the story could go on to you actually lost the photo and actually losing something precious, like um, had devastated you. And then you could also bring in the fact that, you know, this woman like the fact that she was carrying it around knowing, to me there's something in about that is always look for the opportunity to make a difference. Wow. Yes. So to me, there's something about life is precious, something's precious. So why, why, don't, why don't we try to make a difference ourselves in our own life, but constantly look to make a difference to someone else? And that, like, uh, to me, to me, that whole thing is make a difference.
0: Yes, I love it.
1: Yeah. And whether it's make a difference to yourself or someone else, but make a difference.
0: I love it. Thank you very much. So let's chat about your latest book, Magnetic Stories, How to Connect with Customers and Engage Employees. And you were very kindly sent me an advanced copy. I loved it. You write, your brand is the stories people share about you when you're not in the room. And it's those brand stories that determine if people buy from you, employ you, work for you, or invest in you. Now, that book begins by setting out four sort of big themes or trends that are driving this need for storytelling in business. Can
1: you sort of just set the context for us? I can, Katie. And before I do that, Katie, can I tell you, um, one of the biggest fears you have as an author is, you know, you write the book and, you know, your editor sees it and your publisher sees it and you send it to a few people to write testimonials. And these people will write beautiful tests, but they're people you know they will write testimonials or they will say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't get time to read it, which I always think maybe they read it and thought it was crap. And so, <laughs> so, like, so you never you never really know how good a book is until it goes to what I call real people. So, you know, people that don't owe you anything. They, they're just reading it. You were one of the first people, because we were doing this podcast, I had to send you the PDF of the manuscript. And when you wrote back and said Every single comms person should read this book. I just, like, you've got no idea how that made me feel because I was sort of thinking, yes, they should too, but (laughs) for someone else, like a real person like you to give that feedback meant so much. So thank you. Thank you for that. So, yes, so writing the book, I always knew there was a reason I wanted to write the book. It was after I'd written the first draft of the book, my editor came back and said, I don't think you've spelled it out as clearly why people need to take brand storytelling seriously, why they need to think about, you know, are my stories absolutely magnetic? And she goes, I think you need to add something. And I went, oh, yeah, you're right. I probably haven't, you know, it's in my head. And then I sat down and I thought, I think there's very four very valid reasons why any company needs to take brand storytelling seriously. The first one is that, more and more customers are making their purchasing decisions based on their values. I've got a a 17 and a 20-year-old daughter and the grief I get from them about mum, why are you buying this, buy that, and they know stuff about companies. Do you know that, you know, and I was like, oh, my God. It was like, and so more and more, that's what customers are doing. They're making their purchasing decisions based on their values. So you, you sort of want to be aligned to that. I also think employees, and I think this has been happening for a while, it's not new, maybe it's been happening over the last 10, 15 years, that employees want to work for companies that have got good values. I, I remember when I first started my career 35 years ago at a bank and it'd be celebrated that they were the most profitable, that we made a big profit. And was yes. Just like, and, and I remember thinking at the time going. I don't know I mean, you know, besides, besides the the top 10 executives, does that really have an impact? So, so more and more employees are looking for value alignment with the companies they work with. There's also this thing, and this is um, a lot to do with social media, it's what they're calling glass box brands. And what it means mm-hmm. by it is your internal culture can no longer be hidden from the external world. So there used to be a thing called like black box brands. It was just like your internal culture put, you know, you could cover it up. People couldn't see inside, but people see inside and it's through social media. It's your employees talking about stuff. There's got to be an alignment between your internal brand and internal values, because that is what will be seen. Not, not only external customers, but future talent that you want to work for you. And then I think, and, the, and this is a very recent thing, the birth of cancel culture. Where people and so you know a company does something wrong, a celebrity does something wrong, for example, and just the backlash. So all the negative stories are out there that can destroy brands. So it's like, well, how do you how how do you proactively put some positive stories out there? I mean, how do you not do the bad thing in the first place? Um, and I think all those four combined turn into, you need to take control of your brand and you need to do it through storytelling. Because like I said, I think your brand is the stories people tell about you when you're not in the room. That's the the, the, the stories they're sharing. So you need to take control of it. And whether you're a big multinational or whether you're um, just a startup or whether you're a small business whether you're a sporting club it, it doesn't matter what industry you are in you need to take control of your brand and and I think stories is a powerful way to do that
0: and I absolutely recognize all those trends they're ones we've been discussing a lot actually um over the last kind of couple of years almost of this of this show I think so you set out I think it's the 5 Cs but there are five different types of stories that your organizations need to tell. And what I love about these is they're about different points of the sort of evolution of a company. I won't go into them. I'll leave you to go into them. But I think by going through them, it will give our audience a really good idea of where to look for those stories and why they need to tell them. It will do what we've just done actually. It will point out the purpose, if you like, of no. the story and how it fits into the the broader story, I suppose, of
1: the organisation. Well, I love a good palette. So I, I, when I was thinking of all the stories, you know, if you had to categorise them, what they would be, um, there was certainly um, stories about customers. So um, you know, how you're helping your customers or highlighting what your customers are doing. There's stories about community. So what 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 are you doing to help your community? And I'm not and I'm not talking about the standard corporate responsibility stories, but you know, perhaps you've got individuals in employees in your company that's just doing amazing stuff in their community, like could you highlight what they're doing? One of the other stories I talked about was challenge stories. So when you're as either it's individuals in your company or the company is faced with the challenge, how you respond to that. And then we have culture stories. So culture stories is really how your company lives the values. So um, personal stories that your leaders share around the values, but, you know, stories about how you actually live your culture. And then the other one is creation stories, which which initially I called it the founders' story. So how the company's founded, but I I couldn't have four C's and one F, so I decided creation is you know creation. So literally why the company's created. And I think when when I look at companies that do share stories, that that creation story is is probably the most common I see, and 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 it is a powerful story. But I in the book I really. I, I hope the book. What the book does is inspire people to think of all the other types of stories they could be sharing. Just not how the company started. So, so yeah, they're the they're the five the five C's. I could have I could have easily thrown in COVID for another C because <laughs> the book was written last year. But I think they fall under challenge. Culture stories, particularly, I guess, are vital because so often
0: we develop a set of values, albeit with the organization, but nevertheless, there is a need to kind of, you know, we use the word embed or instill or breathe life into them. And often the stories I read about those values feel a little bit manufactured, if Mm -hmm. I'm being really honest. Do you have any tips for ways that organizations can actually get real value stories that people are going to feel are genuine rather than sort of sit down? I mean, it's almost like you know, should we be working backwards and listening to stories and then, as, you st- as you've just done with me, working out which value that actually highlights?
1: Katie, that's a re- so a couple of things, really couple of interesting things you've raised there. I'll address the last one first, so should we work backwards? My accounting company, so my accountant who, who's been my accountant for the last, you know, 20 years, they started off really small and they've sort of grown and they're still, you know, they're still relatively small but they've grown a bit. And he, knowing, the CEO, knowing what I did, he came and said, he he goes, I think we've reached a point that we want to have our values, like organize what our values are. He goes, I sort of know what they are, but, you know, he goes, we sort of, you know, want to go through the process of stating them. And he goes, and then we, you know, want to find stories that we can communicate to demonstrate them. And I said to him, I go, would you be interested in experiment where we did it the other way around? Yes. And he went, yeah. And I go, so I went in and what I did was I sat with his, it was only a small team of about 15 people. And I just, I just came up with all these questions, like things like, tell me a time when you felt really proud to work here. Uh, You know, tell me a time when one of your colleagues did something that made, made a difference to someone. Tell me a time when you get home and you spoke to your family about something cool you did today at work. So. First of all, I never mentioned the word story. And what happened is people shared all these stories because that's what we do. And I did this for about two hours and we had a bit of a break and I just looked at, I just went, all the stories I heard, things were evolving. And so they came back from the break and I go, I'm going to have a punt here. I go, from all the stories you've told me, this is what I think your values are. And it was things like everyone has a voice we make a difference. Um, we back the bolt, like, and they just went, "Oh my God, that's us. That's us." And literally, there was very little wordsmithing done. I think they added one more that was like, "We're more. We're more than numbers," which I think became their purpose. And so it was so cool because we, not only did they that help them clarify their values, but they had all these stories, genuine, authentic stories that demonstrated them. So. So yeah that was that was pretty cool.
0: I love that. So time for another story because that reminds me of the sort of blinding flash of insight I had after interviewing a hostage negotiator for my book. So this was a, this would be about 4 years ago but there's a an ex FBI and Metropolitan Police hostage negotiator called Richard Mullander and he talks about how the job of the hostage negotiator is to listen, not really talk. And he says that um, what you're listening for is somebody's values. So you're listening to them in quite a kind of mercenary way, in a way, because you're not listening to sympathize or walk in their shoes. You're just listening to make sure that you understand what's driving their behavior. Because once you've understood what's driving their behavior, you can use their values to change what they do next. And I was working with a young researcher at the time for the book, and and, and I could see she did not really believe this. She was like, hmm. And so he said, well, I'll give you a really life example. I was called to a domestic siege situation where, very unfortunately, a husband who suspected his wife of adultery had tied her up, poured petrol on her head, and was threatening to set fire to an awful, awful situation. And he said, after a very long time of trying to get this man just to talk to him, he, uh, the, the the husband sort of said, "Well, Richard, I mean, you come home. This is what you find. You what? You try to work hard to look after your family. Yet when you come home, this is what you find. What? What am I supposed to do?" And then, I anyway, Richard turned around to me and Ellie was helping me with the book and said, "What has this man just told me?" And we said, "Oh well, clearly he feels frustrated and he's angry. Uh, maybe he doesn't know. You know, he's, he's just he's just really, really angry and doesn't know what to do." And and Richard said, no, you've totally missed the point. He's just told me he's a family man. He's just told me he loves and cares for his family. So what's the next thing I say to him? I say, I don't want to speak to some man who's got some woman tied up. I want to speak to the husband and the father who loves and cares for his family. And we were like, oh, and that suddenly made me realize that you're right. We kind of rush to our audiences to impose our values. They already have values. Mm. They already exist. And maybe what our job is to actually listen to those values and use the audience's values in aid of our quest to propel our organisations forward, not the other way around, if
1: that makes sense. So, Katie, that's exactly right. The vast majority of the work I do is like, yes, it's, it's training workshops to teach people how to tell stories more effectively, so yes, it's that. But the basis I go in the vast majority of the time, and, and this is the real power, is when companies, you know, have values that they want to communicate, um, but I go in and train their leaders. And it's not, just, it's not just the executive leadership team. It's the vast majority of the leaders. And one of the things I do to them is to say, well, we're going to share a personal story around the company values. And so, what what a lot of organisations do is to say these are our company values, like you know, integrity, respect, you know, customer centric, right or up. Right. And they have bullet points under each of them. So this is what it means. And I I just go to the leaders. I go, I'm not even interested what those bullet points are. I don't care, <laughs> right? And you shouldn't care. You and I, I'll do this thing, like you know, say for example, I go. What what's one of the company values that you resonate with or you like? And I go, oh, uh, respect. I okay, go, okay, what does that mean to you personally? And they'll go, um, uh, uh, integrity. I okay, go, okay, okay, can you just not use words? I okay, go, can you tell <laughs> me what it actually means to you? And they will sit there and go, well, well you know, it means if you say you're going to do something, do it. Go on, okay. What else does it mean? Um, it means listening to people, truly listening to people. And I go, "What out?" And, and I go, "What else does it mean?" And a lot of them and this is, this is again, senior leaders, they'll go, "Oh, I don't know, you've put me on the spot here. I haven't really thought about it this much before." Wow. And I and just sitting there, and that's when I stop it, and I go, "Thank you for doing this, because everyone else in the classroom is feeling the same. Your job is to communicate these values, but how many of you actually thought about what it means to you before?" And it, do, it doesn't take long for them to go you know, what actually, what it really means is this. And I go, fine, wow. just, just find what it really means to you. And then I take them through the process of finding a personal story that they can use to communicate that. So, it, it, you know, it could, be, it could be a story about, you know, their kids that, you know, maybe said, Dad, you never listened to me or, or you know, whatever it is. And they, um, and, and then I, And then I teach them the process of how to tell stories more effectively, you know, which is sort of the easy bit um but it's helping them make this personal connection to their own set of values because unless they've done that they can you cannot you cannot communicate company values through bullet points i mean, my god seriously you can you can't just stick words up on a wall or on a mouse pad or on a coffee mug i've been around in organizations for 30 years and seen all types of values rollouts that involve coffee mugs and mouse pads and They don't work. You've got to get your leaders connecting to them on a personal level um, and communicating personal stories to to show what it means to their people. It's not until you can reflect
0: on what it means to you in your life that Mm. you've really thought about it and that takes a, a, a deeper level of thought. But then when you have, and it's so interesting, isn't it, it will give, no doubt it gives leaders so much more confidence to talk about these things because in their heart, they know what they mean. They haven't got to learn a script now. They've actually just got to reconnect with what that value means to them and remember that feeling they had when they thought, yes, you know, I felt respected or I gave respect. That's what it really means. You know, it's. We use that word authentic, I think, maybe yeah. too much, but it really does then come across as authentic and meaningful. Yeah. I would absolutely.
1: imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if and if it is authentic, like the story is true, you believe in the message. Um, we we also talk about, you know, how do we make our leaders more human and more relatable and show vulnerability. I, I think if you were genuinely sharing a story and what it means to you personally, all that stuff comes across and it comes it comes across naturally. There's so many benefits to it. A it gets the message across better. A, B it helps people actually your people, your whether it's your new employees or your customers connect with the value and purpose in a more authentic way. Um, and it's like all the other stuff we talked about. it builds trust in you. it strengthens it strengthens the relationship again, whether it's with your employees or your customers, it strengthens the relationship and so uh, to me it's win-win-win-win but you know it's it's got to be done authentically it's got to be done properly um and part of my training is teaching people how to do it properly because um i think one of the most i think because storytelling is becoming really popular at the moment a lot of companies go oh we're going to get our leaders to tell more stories and just tell them so you need to tell more stories Seriously, there's a skill. There's a skill. You know, if it was that easy, we'd all be doing it and we'd all be doing it well. Granted, I might be a little bit biased here, but I think it's really setting people up for failure if you expect them to tell stories, but don't teach them how to do it properly. Yes. We we wouldn't do it with anything else, would we? We wouldn't go, you know, here's a new software platform, go use it without training people how to do it. So um,
0: you must have trained. Thousands, I would imagine, of people at yes.
1: all sort of levels,
0: and I believe you've also worked with the Obama Foundation as well. I know. How, cool. How exciting! That, That's very that cool.
1: is that is a phone call or an e- or was an email initially where um, someone from the Obama Foundation sent me an email to say we to, you know we're running a program we're training two hundred leaders across the Asia Pacific region. Um, we want to teach them storytelling. We'd like to speak to you and just go you when you read it go like is this scam is this like you know and then you have that conversation and they go oh, we really want to work with you and and there I was and it was at um it was at a conference in Malaysia and Barack Obama was going to be there and Michelle Obama and uh, Michelle wow. Obama and Julia Roberts we were never going to meet them so they made it very clear that you know their t- you know schedule's really tight and blah 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 and we'd never meet them and it was um it was the last day of the conference. I was actually there with my daughter uh, Alex, who I talked about. It was her 19th birthday, so I have a bit of a rule that I don't—I'm not away for the kid's birthday. As it was, she was—you uh, know—she had finished uni, so I took her to Malaysia with me. And uh, it was the last day of the conference. We—we we had been told that Barack Obama had already left, and we were sitting there, and he walked by with his entourage, you know, he's still, you know, he's the ex-president, but he's still, Yeah. he actually broke, he, he saw that we were the speakers. So we had the speakers and he broke away and came and and shook our hand and said, thank you for being involved. You're also told that you, you're not allowed to take photos and you're allowed to ask for selfies. And he said, you know, let's take a photo with the speakers. Oh, wow. And yes. And I sort of pushed Alex. So there's him and he, Alex is next to him and then I'm next to him. And it was so cool and you know um it was probably the professional um highlight of my career just to the fact that you know when i started doing this 15 years ago like you just you just don't imagine this and that 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 storytelling would have such credibility that you'd be you know you'd be running training for the obama foundation That's it's amazing <laughs> it's unbelievable
0: Fantastic. Mm. Is there, I mean, there must be, I'm, I'm, I'm sure lots of tools and techniques and systems and frameworks that you teach and depending on the group that you're talking to, but is there one particular moment usually, is there one particular piece of advice that you give people and suddenly the lights turn on? Do you find that there's one thing that you say that tends to resonate and get your point across and help them more than all the other points?
1: Um, look, Katie, I think, you know, when I run my training, depending on where people are, like, you know, people are coming from the point of, yeah, storytelling is really powerful. I want, want to learn how to be better at this. And there's always people in the room. I do a lot of in-house training. So there's a lot of leaders in the room that are still thinking oh, you know, not really sure, like, you know, I'm, I'm in finance, how could storytelling be, you know? So there's some skeptics. So people will take different things from what I say, and, and it's a different turning point, I guess, for a lot of them, depending on where they are. There's one thing that I know gets everyone across the line and it's nothing I say. Part of my training and I always, you know, when people go, oh, what can you do in an hour? I go, "Eh, not much. I can talk about it, but, you know, so, you know, I do a half day or a full day. There's a moment where I've taught them the why storytelling is important. You know why we why logic's important, but we just can't rely on it. I've taught them how to be clear on their message, how to find stories. I've taught them the framework. You know how you start your story, what you put in the middle, how you end it. i have done all this stuff, and then I put them in groups with their peers, and they share a story. Right. And the turning point is they experience the power of it because one of their colleagues, not me, not me. One of their colleagues will share a story and they will go, oh, my God, that was, I can't, I can't believe how powerful that was, or I can't believe how emotional I got, or I can't believe the impact it had on me. And they experience the power of it. And once they've experienced the power of it, then they start to go, maybe this will work. Maybe it's Mm. worth me getting over myself and giving it a go, because if that had an impact on me, maybe... Maybe it could have an impact on white people.
0: Mm, That makes perfect sense. Do you think COVID has actually helped in a way? Because we, I mean, working in the way that a lot of us are working at the moment from home, you know, juggling. One of my guests described it. It's not a work-life balance, Katie. It's a work-life collision. And I thought, yeah, that's about right. Mm. Do you think that's helped in a way break down some of those barriers and get us to connect and tell stories that we
1: wouldn't otherwise do? have told? Yeah, look, I think I think COVID's done a lot of good things. I mean, like clearly a lot of crap's come from it. But um, I think, you know, we've often talked for years and years about, you know, bring your whole self to work. And I think it's only when we've been forced to work from home that that's happened. So, you know, the fact that everyone's Zoom and, that we, you know, we're seeing each other's backgrounds and, you know, their kids walking in and that's created those I think human connections of people going, oh, you know, when people going, oh, you've got a cat, or oh, how old, how old's your daughter that's just walked in. So it's, it's, I think it's created a catalyst for those personal conversations that that perhaps wouldn't happen. I've also seen, you know, so I'm a I'm a international speaker and trainer. So when COVID hit, my world just collapsed, my professional world but then it got really really busy because what happened is a lot of people realized that now that we're physically disconnected this need to have more of a human emotional connection is needed more than ever so, so I actually got really busy running virtual storytelling training because it, it was people sharing this so I think that has happened so I think I think that's helped people realize that this human connection is really important um whether we've got Better at storytelling because of it, I don't know. But I think there's more, there's been a more opportunity for people to share more of their personal life. And I and I think if you're in a culture where that's where that's more normal, then it's easier to implement storytelling in a professional sense.
0: It's interesting. I was I was reflecting on the fact that you wanted to call them founder stories and you ended up calling them creation stories because of the C, but actually. I think creation stories are probably better because I think mm-hmm. there's a potential with founder stories that they live and die with the founder and right. that we feel we have to sort of recreate or personify ourselves, you know, recreate ourselves in the image of the founder to be able to tell those founder stories accurately and authentically. Whereas if you're talking about creation stories, it kind of elevates it from a person. And I think, which is probably a, a really good thing. I'm thinking of, I don't know if you know the, The founder story of, um, or the creation story of innocent drinks. They may only be in the UK, but they were bought by. I want to say Coke, but I might be wrong here. So apologies if I've got that wrong. But they started off as, I think, two or three mates and they were working in proper jobs, I think in the city of London in banking. And they went to a, a festival where they decided to start selling these smoothie drinks. They wanted to test the market to see if they should resign their jobs on the Monday. They did this festival and um, they put a stall up. One bucket said, should we leave our jobs? Do you like the smoothies? And the other said, whatever you do, stay in your full-time employment. And at the end, they just wanted to count the bottles. They just counted the bottles in each bucket and decided, oh, like everyone loves our smoothies. We've got to resign. And they did the next day resign. That's the story that's very much tied to them. Whereas I'm guessing when you talk about creation stories, it's a way of, sort of slightly
1: elevating the story so that anyone could tell it. Would that be fair? Yeah, and look, and I and I think you're right. I think in, in the end, it was wasn't just for palette. I think creation did capture what I was what I was trying to mean by that, um, as opposed to the founder story of why did the company start or who or who started it, um, for example, where creation stories can bring in not only um, the creation of the company, uh, but it could be the creation of products, for example. Yes. So. Um, I to share a couple of examples, we, probably similar to what you, the story you shared. In, in the book I talk about there's a company in Melbourne and it's called Goodwill Wine and they donate 50% of their profits to um, like, you know, they choose charity causes and they donate them. But the story of the CEO, David, that I found out is 10 years ago in um, some of the really bad bushfires in Victoria, he lost everything. And it was through donations that he could start a new company. And it was because of all the donations, he made a promise that he would donate 50% of all his profits. And that story is on his website. And I actually interviewed David for the book and he said that they actually, he started to become a bit embarrassed about his story and and as the company grew, he, he sort of thought the company's more than me and it's bigger than me and he was actually going to remove that story from the website and in the end he said it's what sort of people resonated with not only that story but then they would share all stories about you know when they donated the profits where that went to and he went I he sort of he goes. I realised that is what customers really re-, he goes not only customers but their employees really responded to. And he, I remember speaking to him. He goes. So I just sort of had to get over myself and leave it there. And he and he didn't want to leave it there, but he he knew it worked. And I was so glad he did because that's a, a, sometimes a lot of companies when they grow they lose those creation stories, which which I think I think is a sad thing. And but then it's also to the creation of a product, and I, I talk about I, I talk. There's there's one chapter is like why is brand storytelling important? And I talk about you know when I grew up, I was such a tomboy. Like you know I never had dolls. I I used to skateboards, BMX bikes, playing cricket and footy with my with my brothers and cousins. I was such a tomboy. When I had my two daughters, I refused to buy them a doll and i certainly refused and i told they're you not know, a barbie the concept of a barbie and you know the the whole story is that barbie was body shaming girls and all this stuff i, I readily brought into that because i didn't like dolls right and so um would never have bought my child barbie And then I was doing, I I was going to a conference, and one of the neurosciences I talked about before, she shared a story of how Barbie started. And so um, the story goes that Ruth Handler, who was the wife of one of the senior execs at uh, Mattel that made, eventually made Barbie, she noticed that her daughter and son, when they played with the dolls, her daughter Barbara had the paper doll. And whenever Barbara was playing with the doll, she was sort of like, she wasn't playing the doll in the current situation. It was like her as a future, but it was always a carer. It was literally a mother. That's the only role she could play. Where her son, Ken, had all these action figures. And Ken was pretending he was, you know, a, a superhero or an astronaut or a pilot. She just thought there's something wrong here, so she... Proposed to her husband and the senior execs that she created a a rubber doll um, as a woman, and you know they sort of said that no, we're not doing that. No one would buy that for their child. Um, literally a doll, you know, with breasts. Um, anyway, she pitched it. They agreed. They presented it to the New York, um, you know, fair, the New York Toy Fair, and sort of you know, as the rest they say, it, the rest is history. Um, and I love that story because she's quoted as saying, to me, Barbie was all about the um, helping girls think about what they could achieve. And, yes. and, and some of the early Barbies, like this is in the 60s, it was like CEO Barbie, pilot <laughs> Barbie, astronaut Barbie. And I'm thinking, I, I just went, so that, one, that story about how Barbie started completely changed my opinion of that product and not only completely changed it but will will influence my buying decisions so you know if yes. i ever have grandchildren i'm going to buy them a barbie and i'm going to tell them the story and i'll tell them the story that you know your your mother never had one because i didn't know the story back then and so that's sort of my whole idea of magnetic stories is sometimes you can hear a story that you have this instant attraction to it and it's then very very hard to pull away from um, and that, and that, you know, and it's amazing I actually blogged about that and the amount of my female clients that went, oh, my God, I was the same, and it's completely changed my opinion of Barbie. So that's the power of stories. It's
0: also so memorable, isn't it? If, that, if, if Barbie had, if had been born out of a story of we launched it and immediately we got 160% more sales than we imagined in 25 more countries, And you're never going to care or remember any of that, but a story no.
1: like that, is just so powerful. Can I just say that there's a lot of companies that that's the story they would tell. (laughs) They would say, Barbie, the product was launched in 19, blah, blah, blah. It it achieved 20,000 sales in its first years. It's gone on to sell 27 million, blah, blah, blah. Ken was launched and they'll say our story. And you go, that's not a story. That is a timeline of events, (laughs) which is boring, boring.
0: A chronology of your company development, everyone, is not a story, by the way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and just calling something a story, calling a story doesn't make it a story. If it's a timeline, it's still a timeline, and it's boring and it's not connecting with anyone.
0: Do you subscribe to the view that there's only really one story in terms of structure, the story arc, if you like? Everyone says, you know, Star Wars is the archetypal story, you know, we we set out the hero, he's got a challenge, there's this pivotal moment when everything's against him, and then eventually this it comes down to resolution. And you can have a twist in the tail at some point. But actually that's the do you did you subscribe
1: to that view actually as stories? No, I don't no. subscribe to that. So it's it's almost like I often hear that. It's like the hero's journey. You know, you start off with a challenge, you go and I think and especially because I work with people in business and trying to get them to use you know, stories every day to do the message. If if I go in and say the hero's journey story is, people automatically go, well, I don't have any stories. Or or they'll think of the, you know, really big ones like, you know, overcoming cancer and stuff like that, you know. So I guess I subscribe to a structure of stories. So in my training, I, I teach people how to start their stories and what, what to put in the middle and what to leave out of the middle. And and the most important and most critical part is how to end it. So I do, I do provide a framework, but because every message is different and every story is different and every individual is different, it's this really structured framework, but out the end pops beautiful, authentic stories that, that, that are authentic to you and true to you. And so, yeah, I, I guess I, uh, I subscribe to a framework that I teach, but not a, like a one- you know, one sort of type of story.
0: Yeah, I know that's good to hear because, as you say, the hero story makes you think you've got to come up with those yeah. climbing Everest-type stories, which, um, well, speaking personally, I, I certainly don't right. don't have. Are there other sort of common mistakes that organisations make? We've talked about a timeline not being a story. Are there other sort of common mistakes that you see over and over again?
1: Yeah, look, I think there are. I think some companies just go, well, if we call it a story, it's a story, and it's not. I think the most common mistake is we we want to allow people to use stories but don't train them. That That is, again, like I said before, it's just setting people up for failure. And I think probably as storytelling is becoming more popular and even the concept of calling this brand storytelling, I actually fought against because I thought I don't want people to think this is marketing, which right. a lot of people go, brand is marketing. So I think one of the biggest mistakes is people Think, well, that's marketing or that's comms, and we just leave it to them. Marketing and comms can be a really big support in this, but you need your leaders, all your employees are your biggest advocates and should all be involved in brand storytelling. So I, I think that's probably, you know, as storytelling becomes more popular, I think the biggest mistake companies make are thinking this belongs to a department where it belongs to everyone, everyone, and they need to know what they're doing
0: we must just touch on jargon free
1: Fridays. (laughs) We'll put the link
0: in the show notes to your wonderful videos. Uh, You said recently in another podcast that I listened to as part of research for this, that about jargon, and you said, you know, it's often used to sort of hide bad news, but what sparked the idea of jargon free
1: Fridays and what, what are they all about? Uh, look, it, it, you know, funny, it it came from a client that sent me some, it was like a Dilbert cartoon, you know, the Dilbert cartoons, they actually have a, and she sent it to me and, and, um, she said, I think you like this. And it was on a Friday and I, and I just thought I'm going to put this on LinkedIn and just say to, you know, like, as a challenge, try not to use jargon today on Friday. And then I went, what about if we could do that every Friday? So it sort of grew from that. It's to me, it's a fun way, like a really fun way to raise awareness to what I think is a very bloody serious problem Um, with community. You know, we, we speak in jargon, we talk in acronyms. I don't know why we thought using acronyms was efficient. It's not efficient and it's not effective. And just because you can reduce it to an acronym doesn't mean you should it's just like you know, just because you can eat a packet of Tim Tams in ten minutes doesn't mean you should. Okay, so let's not reduce everything to acronyms. So yeah, I just got a couple of fun videos um, made up, like you know, because I, the videos one I wanted to highlight, if we spoke the way we did in business in any other aspect of our life, we would call it out for how ridiculous we are. So a few of them, like you know, if a if a marriage proposal was in jargon, or if we spoke uh, one of my favorites if we spoke to the you know our kids about sex in jargon like again how ridiculous it sounds so it's just it's just being aware of it and you know and I think using acronyms unnecessary use of acronyms is just lazy communication and I think as communication professionals um, I'm on the board of uh, IABC Asia Pacific which is you know the International Association of Business Communicators Asia Pacific there's a few acronyms in there and um, I, I, part of my role is to pick up on the amount of acronyms we use. And I think, um, you know I, know, I know a lot of your um, listeners are, have a very strong interest in communication. I think as professional communicators, it's our um, responsibility and opportunity to call out jargon that doesn't really say anything and the unnecessary use of acronyms. So, I'm not against acronyms completely it's just the unnecessary use of them. I mean lots of thoughts come to mind. One is I think as communicators
0: we often we are at the centre of things uh, even if we're not physically at the moment at the centre of things but we are we are presented with these acronyms and use these acronyms all the time that in our lexicon we know exactly what they mean hopefully so we can easily wrongly make the assumption that others understand them. But actually, when you get to the very front lines of our organizations, no one is using them. No. Um, my favorite my favourite one, I've, and I've, I'm sure I've mentioned this before on a podcast, I had a client that was going through a major privatization, didn't want to use that word because they thought it would be uh, a red flag to a bull. Privatization wouldn't go to, down too well. So they said, can we go to the front line and talk about raising external finance or raising external capital? Yeah, I, I do focus groups. And I say, well, what do you think about the plans to raise external capital? And they'd say, um, yeah, uh, you mean privatisation, don't you? Steve Crescenzo in another
1: one of our podcasts said, use weekend words. If we spoke this way in our, any other aspect of our life, would people go, what does that mean? And you just, so yeah, use weekend words. And, and even acronyms, we may know exactly what I mean, but depending on industries, like, you know, if you say something just as simple as SMEs, Yes, you know, Ca- you caught me out the other day. Subject matter expert, or you're talking small to medium enterprise, like, it, like, and you'll be saying SMEs, but people could be having something completely different.
0: It caught me out with a client, a, a, a partnership organisation, one of the big four accounting firms, just the other day. SME, because I am an SME, but I'm not a subject matter expert. And yeah. That's what yeah, they yeah. thought. And, and
1: so, yeah. the other thing I talk about are STIs. So you know, it was like oh God, yeah, God. But you know, when I when I was in the when I was in the banking industry. And STIs, STIs were short-term incentives. You know, and you wanted them. People wanted them as opposed to sexually transmitted infections. So I mean, imagine being in a job interview and asking someone what STIs they currently are on. So, (laughs) So they're just dangerous. They're just dangerous.
0: And and actually, we kind of learn in life, don't we? That the really smart people make things simple. So you're not actually sounding smarter. To any chief executive, I would give that advice. Two or three TED talks will tell you that straight away. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, Look, and I, and I think we use I think we use jargon and acronyms. I think we use I do. We think we use it as avoidance. So, like you said, we don't want to say privatization, so we'll come up with them. But we use avoidance. We do use it for importance, like to make ourselves sound important, but you're not fooling anyone. Um, And I think most of the time we just use it as acceptance. Like everyone else is using this buzzword, so we're using this buzzword. Um, And a lot of the time we use it for ignorance. We actually don't know. We actually don't know it's jargon until someone out of our industry says, what does that mean? And and when you go um, and you can't explain it (laughs) in normal words, that's when you know it's jargon. It's a great time actually if you're new to an organization
0: to challenge some of that because you can, you know, legitimately say what does the QIV stand for or whatever it is, and then see the blank faces around the room that think, mm-hmm,
1: I've just been yeah. using that. I don't actually know. Yeah, um, Katie, on that though, I think it's a really good time when you're new to an organization to say what does that mean? What does that mean? But I reckon after about two weeks, you're going people stop doing that because they don't want to sound stupid. I think as internal communicators, as communicating professionals, it's the responsibility to always say just be clear what do you mean by that because it could be meant like this because I think that's the position of power as to someone new trying to fit in, they will go to acceptance and they will start using it because that's what everyone else is saying. I I think communication professionals need to take that as a responsibility to make sure that they're aware that that acronym could mean something else.
0: Good point. Absolutely. So, if you've got time, I know we've slightly run over, but if you've got time, I'd love to go to those quick fire questions. Yeah, absolutely. What would most surprise people about Gabrielle Dolan? I love
1: spreadsheets. No, that does surprise me. See, people think you're into storytelling. In fact, I have a storytelling spreadsheet, so I love spreadsheets. (laughs)
0: That does really surprise me. You've got the whole left and right brain
1: thing going know, on there. I've even got a coffee mug that says I love spreadsheets that my assistant gave me. I think, she, I think she'd never seen so many spreadsheets when she came to work for me. <laughs> I
0: love it. What
1: do you wish you'd known when you first started out in your career? So I did think about this question. I had some of the, the best advice I ever got from a leader. I got when I was about 30. And her advice was dress for the job you want, not the job you have. And it was more than just dress. It was sort of behave, like act. You know, you don't want, and I reckon during my 20s, I didn't do that. I always thought, you know, well, when I get a management job, I will start acting like a manager or I will dress like they dress. Dress for the job you want, not the job you have. I wish someone had told me that at 18.
0: Yes, I got given that advice in the city in banking when it was really important to do that, actually, because mm. there was a code. Uh, yeah, totally get that. Apart from your books, which we've talked about, what one book, study, report, it really doesn't matter, even a website, should all comms professionals read?
1: I think it's, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, is the is it the Edelman Report?
0: Yes. yes. Yes,
1: Edelman, they produce it every year, Um And it's around trust and comms. And I think I I probably only discovered that about three years ago and I hang out for that report every year. And I really look into what's changed from the last um, year and and the trends in communication. So that is the one I'd highly recommend anyone to read. So
0: we will put the links to that in the show notes. The latest Edelman came out just last week and – interestingly said, something that had been saying for a while, but it really came out big style in this report that employer media is now the most trusted. So we've lost so much faith in our institutions that actually what our employers tell us, we trust
1: most. So if that's not a big advert yeah. for all of us as comms people, yeah. then I don't know what would be. And that, um, that, that was going back, that's going back to one of the, the trends I spoke about is the glass box brand. It was like your employees will Will you know sort of communicate your brand? So make sure your internal culture is spot on. So this is
0: the one that always fools people. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you
1: couldn't fail? My initial answer to that was skydiving, <laughs> but I have I have sort of jumped off a mountain before on one of those things. Um, look, part of me thinks the fact that you can fail is what makes stuff exciting. So I'd never want to remove because, A, it makes it exciting and, A, when you succeed, it makes it better. To me, failure is not not having a go in the first place. That, that to me, is failure. I mean, just give it a go. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Like, so what? Like, as long as you don't die, clearly, then you're like, like skydiving, but, you know, it just gives stuff a crack.
0: I totally agree. And then finally, borrowed from the Tim Ferriss show, we give you a billboard for millions to see. What message
1: are you going to put on that billboard? So, Katie, I love this question because when I launched my last book, I actually did billboards. It was just like, so I had these messages like, you know, stories, engage, bullet points in rage, stuff like that. And I was tossing up whether to I do billboards for my next um, book um, and I think I will because you know th- this was like a you know omen. I always look for omens. So my billboard for this one I think is going to be something like: Are your stories magnetic or Teflon? Do they just oh. do they connect and you know attract, or they just <laughs> slip on by and no one takes notice? So
0: that's a great test for this year when you're devising your stories, Gabrielle. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Katie. I have loved our chat.
0: So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, I'd be extremely grateful if you could rate it on your podcast platform, because I'm told that increases the chances of us being discoverable by other IC pros out there. Thank you very much. And to find out more about the books and the other resources that Gabrielle and I mentioned, head over to the show notes on AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk forward slash podcasts. You'll find the show notes there, plus links to every other episode. And while you're on the site, you might like to sign up for our monthly IC newsletter. It's called I Saw This and thought of you. It'll give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of comms. We have some great guests coming up in season five so, you might want to hit the subscribe button today. We have the head of IC at Tarmac, Kate Jones, talking about the new Gallagher State of the Sector Report 2021. We have Parathana, the core head of IC at the construction company ICG. We have Avita Patel, who needs a no introduction. We have Jenny Field talking about her new book on internal comms and William Leach, the behavioral psychologist and author of Marketing to Mindsets, who's gonna help us foster a deeper connection with our audiences. So all that remains is to say thank you. Thank you for choosing the internal comms podcast. And until we meet again, lovely listeners, Stay safe and well and remember, it's what's inside that counts.